Hey there, fellow writers. Welcome to the Pick Up the Pen podcast, a podcast by writers for writers, where we help you get out of your own way, whether it's fear, self-doubt, anxiety, depression, all that baggage that comes with being a writer. We help you drop that baggage so you can not just be a writer, but be a successful writer. Don't let the amount of research deter you from pursuing it because I promise you the end result is so worth it. And putting in all that hard work is worth it in the end because you're going to have something that you're very proud of that you can say, you know, I did this work. I did this research. This is authentic. And, you know, I, I put my everything into it. And I think that the end result is worthy of what it is. The sky's the limit, I guess, <laughs> as they say. I'm your host, Sadie Chelsea, and this is episode 18, who you just heard was historical fiction writer Lindsay Farah. As you would imagine, Lindsay knows how to do her research, so in this episode we'll talk about how you can do effective research for your stories, even when that research seems overwhelming and intimidating. Lindsay will share with us not only how to do research and how to dive into that research, but where to look, where to go, what to focus on during the research and editing process, how to take and organize your notes, how to overcome roadblocks and obstacles during research, and so much more. My name is Lindsay. I write historical fiction. I guess I've always been kind of writing my whole life. I grew up in a pretty historic town. I'm from Massachusetts. The house I grew up next to was built in the 1700s. And there are stories of women who were from my town that were tried as witches during the Salem witch trial. So I kind of always grew up surrounded by that. And I grew up, you know, near Salem. And I used to go there all the time as a kid. And, and it just kind of has always been interesting to me. I think what drew me towards it more as a writer is conveying the parallels that we have in our current society to ones in the past, because we are more similar than we are different. As a historical fiction writer, I'd imagine you have so much research to do. So how do you even get started? Absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's They always say, write what you know, but when you've never lived in the 1700s, like how do you know that? So yeah, there's a lot of research that goes into it. I kind of started with looking around my town and buying books written by noteworthy authors on the time period that I was writing. So my book takes place in 1770s, sort of right around the beginning of the Revolutionary War. And I started buying books written by authors who sort of write around that time period. I have another book that sort of spans the entire length of the war. And I kind of started there and I started reading the chapters that pertained to the years that I was writing in. And then I started visiting different historical sites. Now, I'd been to Lexington and Concord. I've been uh, to Bunker Hill. I've been to different taverns in and around New England. I've been to Fort Ticonderoga. So it just, you kind of start going to different like battle locations, really getting a layout of the land. And it's hard because I'm writing about Boston and Boston is, I found in my research that, you know, maps of old Boston don't look anything like modern day Boston. So it's hard to really write that when you can't go to Boston and say, oh yeah, this was here, this was here. Like none of that was there back in the 1770s Boston. So it's really, really hard. 
So you mentioned traveling to all these different places, but what about people who maybe don't necessarily have the funds to directly travel to these locations and whatever it is that they're researching? Do you think it's still possible for them to do effective and authentic research without the travel? Yeah, I think so. I think you can find tons of stuff on the internet as far as books and old maps, Google Maps. You can even get like a picture version of what that area actually looks like. I don't know if they have that of every battlefield, but you can certainly look at different maps, both modern and antiquated maps that were drawn from the time period you're writing in. If there is any time period that you're interested in, dive right in. I would say be leery of the sources that you're finding. I wouldn't necessarily go to Wikipedia, but there are hundreds of sources on the internet, Google Books, different databases that you can access primary resources that have been scanned in by librarians. I mean, there's just countless stuff on the internet that is literally at your fingertips. So if you're interested in any kind of historical period, whether it's ancient Rome or, you know, the Victorian era, there's just tons of stuff at your fingertips on the internet that you can start your search in. And then, you know, as you build up in your research, if you want to go places, go for it. Of course, I think it's always better to go there yourself to kind of get even the energy of the place, you know, is different. But I don't think it's something that you have to do in order to write historical fiction. You just have to have that desire within you to dive into your research, whether it's through a book or if you have the means to go to a location. Well, that's definitely a good tidbit there because I know that I've had my own ideas that I've wanted to write and pursue, but then I look at the research and the time period so far back, I don't even know where to start. So true. It's so true. I mean, as soon as you start writing, you're going to come across something like, oh, did they have that back then? Let me search this. Something as simple as clothing and methods of travel and um, food that they ate. It's like, okay, did chickens lay eggs year round or did they only lay them in the spring? Like you're, you're just like, it's like a rabbit hole. You constantly find yourself like getting roadblocked in your writing and you're like, oh, I got to research this. Like I look this up and you take stuff for granted. And I was fortunate to be a part of a historical fiction critique group. And I've had people were like, that word's an anachronism that the OED says that didn't come out until the 1820s. And you're like, oh my God, like trying to make it as accurate as possible is really difficult. Even like slang, vernacular, words that weren't used that you and I use now, the language is a real challenge too when you're writing dialogue. So so with all the resources that you use, what about historical reenactments? Do you ever go to those? I sure do. I sure do. Historical reenactments play a huge part of the research because it's living history. So you go to a place like Colonial Williamsburg and it is literally a living history museum. And the wealth of knowledge from these museum workers, for lack of a better term, is just phenomenal. Annually on the anniversary of Lexington and Concord, they have all kinds of stuff going on, including battle reenactments, which have been an invaluable resource in trying to make my battle scenes authentic. When you go to these historical reenactments, do you meet any of the relatives from people of the past? Do you interview them? Do you interview the reenactors? Do you get any information from them directly? I haven't met anybody who's sort of a a modern day relative of somebody who lived back then, but I have definitely spoken to reenactors and they have been an, an invaluable resource as well because they know the nitty gritty parts of everyday life that you kind of don't get in 
books about the Revolutionary War, or any war for that matter. You learn about the clothing and how they wear their clothing, which is very different than how we wore our clothing now. You learn how they spent their time, and you find that most of the stuff that is documented is for people that were in a higher class of society. So if you're writing about somebody who was more impoverished or in the middling classes, there isn't necessarily a lot of information about them depending on where you look. And their lives were different. If you're looking at somebody who is like King George, his life is widely documented. And his style of living was widely documented, but other people who were making shoes and blacksmiths and stuff, their stuff isn't maybe necessarily as well documented. When you're going through and you're doing all this research, what are some of the roadblocks or obstacles that you hit and how do you overcome them? I hit a huge roadblock when I was writing about Bunker Hill. The amount of research I put into just Bunker Hill alone was ridiculous. And when I was writing it, and I, I remember like writing it, and it spans several chapters because it was a very important battle, and it was a very important battle in my book. I mean, I had my husband read through it, and he made all kinds of corrections and edits. And when it went through my critique group, I, you know, there was so many corrections and edits because I, I find that writing battle scenes in general are difficult because you don't want the reader to be lost, and you need to have a very clear image in your mind of the battlefield that you need to portray to the reader so they're not lost. And then you're blocking your characters and you're figuring out where they're going to be in relation to what actually happened during the battle. So it's it's incorporating all of these things that I was just like, oh, I can't do this. <laughs> you have to like step back, give it a minute, give it a day, give it a week, give it a month, you know, um, and then come back to it, read it again with fresh eyes, go back to your research and say, okay, yes, this works. This doesn't work. It's really, really hard. It's very challenging. So you're traveling, you're going here, you're going there, you're researching, going to reenactments. How do you take all these notes? Where do you put them all? What's the process here? I actually, I rely heavily on my iPhone and I take lots of video and a lot of pictures. So I don't have to remember how it looked. I can literally go back and just look at the actual photographs. I've also recorded some people talking with me. Okay, well, I've never, I've never fired a musket before. What goes into that? And like loading the musket takes like five minutes, you know, and then you learn, well, these guys, they were able to load a musket three times in a minute. And that is insane to me. So when I went to Colonial Williamsburg, I fired a musket because I felt like I needed to know what that entailed and what went into that. And so I was taking mad notes when I did that. And the guy was great. He was so helpful, answered all my questions. And like, I think if I didn't have my iPhone, I don't even know what I would do at this point, you know, and then my husband with his iPhone, he's like taking video of me shooting a musket, like, okay, cool. Like now I can look back on it and see how that went, you know, <laughs> it's such a process. What does the editing process look like for you? Do you go through phases? Is it one big thing? Do you go in chunks? With so much research that has to be covered, how do you go through editing while also keeping the research and authenticity and accuracy in mind? I tend to just start from the very beginning and go through the whole thing. And it takes days, but I want to do it in one continuous edit almost to make sure that everything flows properly and that, you know, there aren't any plot holes. And I feel like it's so easy to have a plot hole pop in somewhere because maybe you you were editing in chunks. Maybe you were like editing the end or the middle. And I feel like I, for me, it helps to go chronologically from beginning to end. Of course, I can't do that in one day. 
sometimes I'll focus on like, okay, I need to really focus on the blocking of scenes. So I'll go through and do an entire edit and make sure that my blocking of my scenes, like where my characters are and make sense. And then I'll do like another edit for like dialogue tags. Okay, there's too much like he said, she said, I'm going to get rid of that and do like action moves, you know, like walking across the room, lighting a pipe or something and making it more interesting to read. You kind of fill in a lot of stuff as you're editing. But I think with like the research too, I mean, sometimes you'll be like, okay, I need to put off this scene until I get to this place in my research. You know what I mean? And that's also another roadblock. You know, you're like, okay, I want to get through this scene. And that was kind of where I was with Bunker Hill. It was like, I can't get past this scene until I've done X, Y, and Z. And that's always a challenge. Where are you now with your book? The book is done. I um, It took about two years for me to get it through chapter by chapter through my um, historical fiction critique group and through their edits, which were so helpful. I was able to cut 50,000 words, 54,000 words from my manuscript, which was huge. And then over the summer, I did another huge developmental edit um, that was last summer. And at that point, I had submitted it to a couple of writing competitions where I placed third in two of them and was a semifinalist in a third, which was really exciting and kind of boosted my like morale of like, okay, maybe this is good enough to query soon. So I did another round of edits and then I started querying in September. That's pretty beneficial, right? Like maybe before you start querying, just throw it into a contest and see what happens. Yeah, I I thought that that could only help me, I guess, in a query letter by saying, hey, I placed third in this contest. I was a semifinalist in this contest. In my mind, I'm thinking if I was an editor or publisher and I saw that this was already judged by some people and it placed third, I mean, granted didn't win, but that's fine. I feel like, you know, placing third is worth mentioning. So I feel like that would bode well for me rather than hurt me. Well, since you're the historical fiction research expert, is there anything that you want to touch on that maybe we didn't cover yet? Did I talk about dialogue and how, you know, words are different and whatnot? Because I feel like that was a really big challenge. And in regards to, you know, what's appropriate for a modern market, you want to have something that sounds authentic, but it's a true challenge striking a balance between, well, like I'm writing this for my readers. I don't want them to be turned off by something that sounds too archaic because I think a lot of people would put a book down if they were like, God, I don't even understand what the hell these characters are saying because it's written so, you know, in such an antiquated way. I've found it to be one of my biggest challenges in historical fiction writing is peppering in the dialogue with some authentic slang terms and vernacular, but also keeping it somewhat modern for the reader. It's something you kind of don't realize until you're in it and you're like, oh, God, okay, that sounds terrible. (laughs) You know, you're like writing it and and then you go to read it aloud and you're like, nobody talks like this. (laughs) You know, you don't want the conversation to sound stilted. So how do you go about figuring out what that balance is? This episode is brought to you by Emily's World of Design, where your author and writer visions come to life. Operating since 2013, Emily has a master's in architecture and graphic design with thousands of designs curated, over 100 recurring customers, is a top-level designer at 99designs, and has a 5 out of 5 star rating. Customers review her as a pleasure to work with, with brilliant designs and a prompt return rate. Creating both custom and pre-made book covers, fantasy maps, logos, animated covers, and more, consider Emily's World of Design for your writing and publishing artwork. You can see designs made on Twitter at Emily Designer, Instagram at Emily's World of Design, or contact directly at 
emilysworldofdesign at gmail.com. That's Emily's World of Design, where your author and writer visions come to life. So how do you go about figuring out what that balance is? I read a lot of letters. So I've read a lot of letters between real historical people. And just to kind of get a sense for how they wrote, I have a book of letters between um, Henry Knox and his wife. And Henry Knox was, I believe he was a general in the Revolutionary War. And there were tons of letters that he wrote back and forth with his wife. So just reading and how, getting a sense for how they like did their sentence structures and how they communicated via letter, because we don't have any recordings of how they sounded when they talked. So you kind of have to go on primary sources. You know, there's tons of letters between John Adams and Abigail Adams. So I kind of take that that knowledge base. I kind of watch a lot of period drama movies. Like The Duchess is one of my all-time favorites. Belle, another one of my all-time favorites. A lot of Jane Austen. And I'll watch a period drama and I get sort of how script writers have written dialogue. It has an eloquence to it that we don't really have in our modern day conversation, but it's still accessible to the person watching. And and I read a lot of Jane Austen too, which I find she's a primary source in a way. And I look at the way she has her people having dialogue within her own world that, you know, are in her books. So I kind of piece it all together and hopefully it works. <laughs> There was something she wrote. It wasn't one of her like super famous big books. It's like this little bits and pieces of short stories and paragraphs that they piece together. You know, it's like a little booklet thing. But I was reading that and I'm like, you know what? I don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) You're not alone. You're not alone. Oh my gosh. When I first started reading Jane Austen, I was like, what the hell is she talking about? What is happening in this story? (laughs) Like... You almost have to like keep reading it. And then your brain does this really weird thing where I feel like it flips itself. And it's almost like you're speaking another language. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I'm totally invested in this. And I know exactly what they're talking about. Because I mean, it's it's English, but it's just written in such a different way than what we're used to. And you really just have, it's like a habit. You have to just keep reading it, reading it, reading it. And then you're like, something clicks one day and you're like, oh, I get it now. But I don't want my writing to be like that. You know, I want it to be more accessible to um, the modern reader, but with a little flair of, you know, giving you that history. So you feel like you're in the world and you don't feel like you're walking down the streets of Boston listening to a conversation. <laughs> yeah, because it's not like the teachers are like, okay, we're going to read Lindsay Farah's historical fiction novel and we're going to answer 20 questions on the first chapter. Like right. they make they make us do that for Shakespeare. Like, oh my God, horrible. <laughs> yeah, us as writers, you know, out in the real world, you're right. We have to make sure that first chapter is accessible because mm-hmm. the readers don't have that. Okay, I have to do this for an assignment or I'm going to get an F. They have that option of putting it down. Absolutely. And that's one of the scariest parts about it because you, you you want the modern reader to pick up your book and say, oh, this is interesting and I feel like I'm immersed in this. This is great. And you also want the historical fiction enthusiast slash historian to read your book and be like, yeah, I believe this. This is feels authentic to me because of the level of research that was put in. You don't want that historian being like, this is not accurate. This takes me out of it. Like this dialogue's awful or that's not historically accurate, you know, because you're going to like lose that audience. And that's almost like half of why you wrote the book, you know? 
And then the backlash is like, well, you didn't do your research and then you, you're not a credible author. You know what I mean? I feel like you, you lose your audience because you're not credible. It's, it's scary because <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want someone to be like, oh, well that didn't happen. And I think you need to be as transparent as possible, especially in historical fiction, because you're like, okay, well I did the research, but at the end of the day, this is a fictitious piece with fictional characters, you know, so you have to suspend your belief in some way. But, you know, hopefully you're not going to lose your historical enthusiasts along the way. I've always thought historical fiction was anything before the early 1900s, maybe. But I think at this point in time, I'm not entirely sure what could be considered historical fiction. Maybe even like the 80s could be in that category. So for you, what do you consider to be historical fiction as far as the time periods go? You could consider anything, you know, 1950 and earlier. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You could go back to the 80s and <laughs> do like a historical fiction piece on the 80s. And even then you'd be researching, okay, what was popular in the 80s? How, how did they dress in the 80s? How did they talk in the 80s? What were some common slang terms for this, that, and the other thing, you know? I'm sure there's some people who consider maybe 1940s and earlier or maybe even 1960s and earlier. But I think when you start seeing the culture get so far removed from I guess, how it was, then you could technically call it historical fiction. I mean, you, you'd have books that take place during World War II, and I, that would be considered historical fiction at this point. Well, it sounds like you're doing an excellent job. You're taking the time to travel and shoot muskets and video <laughs> and photos and having all these notes and taking the time to go through all the different edits and phases. I definitely commend you on you taking on this task. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's definitely been a labor of love. That's for sure. Well, what would you like to say to the writers out there? What do you want them to know? If you're interested in something, don't let the amount of research deter you from pursuing it because I promise you the end result is so worth it. And putting in all that hard work is worth it in the end because you're going to have something that you're very proud of that you can say, you know, I did this work. I did this research. This is authentic. And, you know, I, I put my everything into it. And I think that the end result is worthy of what it is. The sky's the limit, I guess, <laughs> as they say. Don't be afraid. Go out there and research. <laughs> Thanks so much, Lindsay, for coming on and sharing all of that with us. Since our recording, Lindsay's historical fiction book has been published, so you can check it out under the title Muskets and Minuets. If you'd like to connect with Lindsay, you can do so at lindsayfarah.com and on Twitter at author Farah. Next Thursday, we'll be talking with writer and marketer Linda Ray, where we discuss marketing tactics and content you can use to boost exposure and book sales even during COVID-19. So set your notifications to on and tune in. If you liked this episode or any previous ones, make sure you also leave a review on whichever platform you're listening on as it helps other writers discover this podcast and join our writing community. Again, I'm your host, Sadie Chelsea, and I'll see you next week for another episode of the Pick Up the Pen podcast. As always, fellow writers, happy writing and keep on writing on.